Can we say thank you to our worship team this morning for uh, leading us? And that is a tremendous song because the title of this morning's message is Jesus the Dragon Slayer. Isn't it good to know that you're champion, the Lord Jesus Christ? He's already fought the battle for you. He's already won the battle. Now we need to learn simply how to walk in the victory that he's already secured on our behalf. And really, that is the, um, the message behind this entire series is that we simply need to learn how to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, apply that to our individual lives and spiritual battles and spiritual warfare, and then walk in the victory that Jesus has secured for us. So, having said that, um, if you'll take your Bible and turn to uh, Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at several passages this morning um, as we kind of set again the context of what we're going to be talking about over the next uh, several weeks when we talk about winning your war. Not just winning a war, but we really want to personalize it for you. We want to help you win your personal war. I read an article this week that really kind of summarizes uh, where we are as a nation, and I just want to read this excerpt out of that article. It says, we are living in a day of sound bites misinformation, conflicting expert opinions, and simplistic narratives to explain our current situation. We have a 24-7 news cycle driven by sensationalism and the extreme because it sells. Our personal social media feeds are orchestrated by the algorithms that reinforce our particular perspective and big tech companies arbitrarily censor some opinions and facts rather than provide objective reporting. The result is a constant flow of emotional, loaded, biased information and narratives that promotes fear, division, and discord. Does that not describe where we are presently in our culture? Absolutely. All the while, we are trying to live above the noise, above our own fears and emotional reactions, and make sense of all that is happening in our lives presently. And so we stated last week that we are in the midst of a cultural war. We understand that. We know that. But here's the problem. Everybody wants a silver bullet solution. Uh, We we want to, um, you know, believe that there's just, if there's just one big thing that we do or if there's just one person that we elect that they're going to solve all of our problems. It's the silver bullet effect. And, And if we just focus on that person or that event or that ideology uh, that everything in our culture is going to kind of move back to normalcy and everything will quiet, quiet down and we kind of move on with our lives. But you know as well as I do, that is not realistic to life. Uh, there's no one silver bullet answer to everything that we are facing as a nation and also in our lives. And so we try to communicate that if we just do X, Y, Z, just follow that agenda, it will be a quick fix and a quick solution. Now, since our problems in our country and around the world are so big and so, so powerful, here's where it pushes back on us. We just feel powerless, right? So, for example, one of the big um, really epidemic things that's happening in our, our own country is human trafficking. You know, even in Ohio, we're one of the top states in the United States with human trafficking. And I've been through some um, classes with some women who... Um, who actually have houses that help uh, women come out of trafficking. One is in New Orleans. And I just sat there and listened to the stories and just broke my heart, broke my heart. And, uh, you know, I, I've been reading, and um, Christine Kane is a, a female um, 
she's speaker and she has an organization that's, that is worldwide that is helping women come out of human trafficking and not just women, but, but also so boys and men. And, and, um, and so, you know, I, I've been listening to that and I've, I've been reading a lot of things and God's just so broken my heart over that event. Um, but I think, you know what, this thing is so big, so powerful. What can I do? Where can I, where can I slot in? What can I do to help this problem that seems so massive? And so what happens when we, we look at something like that, then we just kind of back up and go, well, I guess there's nothing I can do. And we just kind of shrug our shoulders and wring our hands of, you know, wash our hands of, of the situation in front of us. And, um, and so fear of the future or for our personal safety often promotes the mindset of personal isolationism and personal protectionism where we just don't want to get involved, we don't want to get engaged, and we're just going to kind of huddle into our own world and our own interests and we're just going to stay there until Jesus returns. And so the motto of the, the church in, the, in these present days have been, well, come, Lord Jesus, come, get us out of this world, relieve us from all of what's going on around us. But that's never been God's calling on our lives for us to escape out of what God's doing in the world, even though the world is, is in a terrible predicament. But what we fail to realize is, and why I'm doing this series, is that the church cannot afford to sit in isolation hoping that one day the world's going to get better and then we can come out from our hiding. We are to be involved and engaged in, even in the Roman Empire, when a pandemic hit them in, in the way of the coronavirus and worse, and people were dying by the thousands, it was the church who went down there and started, you, you know, uh, with the Roman citizens, started caring for the Roman citizens who were sick and dying, even at the cost of their own lives. And it so infuriated the Roman government because it made them look bad that they were ignoring their people, and the, ch the church was down there ministering to those who were sick and afflicted. We can't afford just to isolate ourselves away because the times are too taxing, they're too burdensome. And so the Bible reminds us that we, in, while we're in our hiding places, listen, we are in the middle of a war, but we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but we are fighting against principalities and powers and authorities. It is a spiritual war. And so the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6.12 that these forces of evil are found in heavenly realms. There is a war that is behind the world war. There is a problem that is behind all of our problems. There is a spiritual realm that plays itself out in the physical realm on planet Earth, and we are engaged and involved in that battle, whether we realize it or whether we will accept it or not. People say, well, wait a minute. Uh, didn't Paul, who wrote, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, uh, wasn't it flesh and blood that, like, beat him many times? And wasn't it flesh and blood that criticized him often? And wasn't it flesh and blood that imprisoned him? And wasn't it flesh and blood that led to his death? Absolutely it was. But the Apostle Paul realized what is being done in the flesh and blood, there is a realm behind that that is driving that and is enforcing its will upon people. There's a problem behind the problem. There's an active, powerful, spiritual world that is being played out on planet Earth. There have been many, many shooters, for example, um, those who do mass shootings, when they're interviewed, talk about hearing voices and about receiving commands. Who do you think those voices are? Who do you think is issuing those commands? 
For example, when God was raising up his nation, the nation of Israel through whom the Messiah would come, who was it that was warring against Israel? It was flesh and blood. But who was the brainchild behind the flesh and blood? It was Satan, the evil one, who was seeking to wipe out the, the oncoming Messiah. This is a chess match kind of thing that's happening between God. God moves, Satan counter moves. God moves, Satan counter moves. God moves, Satan counter moves. And we are in a part of that war. And that is why we are spending several weeks breaking this down so that we can learn how to win our war against our enemy known as Satan. Now, I understand from the outset that a lot of people don't believe in Satan. They don't believe in the spiritual uh, realm of things, and people are going to be watching online and say, well, you know, I really don't believe in Satan and all that mumbo-jumbo, and, and uh, so there are those who are that way, or there are those who believe, you know, Satan exists, but don't really think that much about his activity in the world, and in particular in your life, and, and what activity does he have, and how much pull and, and um, over us does he have, and how much influence does he have over our, our thought processes, and and so for, for many people, it's just like, okay, he's there, but oh, I'm going to move on with life. And so you never, you, you never acknowledge and own up to the fact that the Bible warns us that Satan has many schemes that are set against us. And if we don't see them, if we don't understand them, and we don't fight against them, we will fall for them. And as a result, our lives, our, our lives are, are dramatically impacted and even beyond our lives. So Here's why this is important. If we fight the wrong war, we will never win the war. In other words, you will never fix cultural, physical, economic, or any other problem until you first address and fix the spiritual issue that is behind the problem. This is where spiritual warfare comes into play. This is where Satan and what happens in the unseen invisible realm is being played out in the physical, visible realm. People are not your problem. Satan is your problem. And if you want to fix your problem, you got to fix the spiritual issue behind the problem. That's my thesis for this series. And so we're in this cultural war of a spiritual nature, and it is the clashing of kingdoms. It is the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, two rival kingdoms here on planet Earth. Two rival kingdoms that got into a war in heaven. That war has now been placed down here upon earth, and we are very much a part of that war. In fact, we were born on the wrong side of the war, and therefore no one is immune to the consequences of this spiritual battle. It is a collision of two kingdoms. So if you're going to understand the world in which you live, you've got to open up the word of God because God has told us, why this took place, how it's unfolding, where it's all going to end, how it's all going to end, and where God is taking the future of this planet and, and throughout of all of eternity. And so if you're going to understand the world God made, you've got to understand the word that God wrote. And the central theme around the entire Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, his ruling and reigning from his throne in heaven, that is central. And uh, I believe that the gospel applied is the answer to every single problem you will ever face, and it is the answer to every single problem the world faces because the gospel applied addresses the issue of the human heart, and that is the core of the human problem. The Bible says that a human heart is deceitful. It is wicked. Who can cure it 
Who can manage it? I mean, that's why we sometimes say things and do things, and we're like, whoa, where did that come from? Well, I, I, I never thought I would say that. I, I never thought I would do that. And yet it's, it's our hearts that are they're just deceitful and, and, as the Bible says, beyond cure. And so the answer to the curing of the human heart is the, the gospel applied. And the key there is applied. Not the gospel ignored, not the gospel acknowledged, but the gospel actually being applied. For example, you want to erase, erase racism? Have every single human being apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to their heart, for the gospel leaves absolutely no room for racism. That's why the Bible says in Revelation that every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be bowing at the throne of Jesus Christ and worshiping him. So, this, there's a war. So let me set the context, because I want to give you three reasons why you can win your war, and then next week we're going to get it on a real personal level. We're going to talk about relationships uh, for next several weeks, how you win your war in your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others, your relationship in church, and your relationships you have in the world, all right? These were, life is all about relationships, and this spiritual war comes out in relationships, so let's set the backdrop for all of this. Number one, and we see here in Revelation chapter 12, there was a war in heaven. And note this, God won his war. All right, He won the war. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 7. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Who's the dragon? The dragon, Satan. This is a reference to Satan, a name for him. He has multiple names given in Scripture. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads not just, what's his goal? His goal is to lead the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So in heaven, uh, just kind of, they're, they're having church, you know, the angelic beings. Remember, we talked last week about the angelic realm is that there is a hierarchy in the angelic realm. Certain angels have certain job descriptions, certain levels of authority. And uh, so Satan was an angel, created angel. His original name was Lucifer, which means shining one or star. He was like the prototype of God's angelic beings. Now, if you don't know what a prototype is, let's say I wanna, I'm a car manufacturer and I want to make a car and I, I make a prototype. And so when I get the prototype right, then everything I make after that is going to be based off the prototype. Well, this is what, what Lucifer was. He was, at such, uh, he was a part of God's divine counsel. He was at the, the tip top of the angelic realm hierarchy, level of authority. And so he was God's prototype. And so the question is then, well, what happened? Why did Satan all of a sudden decide he wants to try to usurp God off his throne and, and overtake it? And so the questions that people often ask me is like, okay, well, why would Satan war against God? And if he did war against God, why in the world, rather than just hurling him to the earth, why didn't God just wipe him out? Take him out, you know, he's, he's over, he's done with, boop, obliterated, no more. Well, why was that? Well, let's kind of unpack that thought process. Again, Lucifer was, was God's angel in charge. And so the Bible tells us, and we would know this, again, as Scripture didn't tell us, that in Ezekiel chapter 28, that, that pride began to rise up within the heart of, of Lucifer. And listen, when pride begins to well up in your heart, 
And one of the ways you know your pride is welling up in your heart is you begin to covet things that you don't have. All right, so the Bible says he began to pride, began to well up. He began to covet what he did not have. What did he not have? He had everything that God had given to the angelic realm, which was everything uh, except the throne. And so he coveted the throne of God. And the reason why we know he coveted the throne of God is found in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 13, the five I will prideful statements that Lucifer made prior to his insurrection against God. He says, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise up my throne above the stars of God. Who are the stars of God? The stars of God are the angelic beings. And so he says, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise my throne to a, even above God's throne, and I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. What was the amount of the assembly? That is God's divine counsel. He says, man, I, I'm going above the divine counsel. I'm going above God. I'm going to be at the peak, and I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. Now, what Lucifer failed to remember is that he was a created being. He was not the creator. And that's what pride will do. Pride will raise you up to a level that you really have no business being. And so he wanted to establish this rival throne against God and he wanted to usurp God's authority over the angelic creation so that they would follow him. And so in essence, again, he, he forgets about being created. He talks about this invasion, this direct attack upon God's throne. Now, he was so prideful that he believed, even though he was created and not the creator, that he could literally defeat the creator. Otherwise, why would he have warred against him? If he knew he was not going to make it, and if he knew what was going to happen to him if he didn't, why would he even fight against him? And so in his mind, he's thinking, hmm, I've, I've got this. And so you, you understand every time you and I try to run our own lives, every time we try to be our own boss, every time we try to act like we are our own God, we are saying in essence, you know, Satan, I'm kind of in agreement with you. I will ascend to heaven. I'll call the shots. I'll be like the most high. I will be my own God. I will make the, my, my way in life. I don't need God. I really didn't want him. And so a third of the angelic beings sided with Satan. And they said, we're all in with you, brother. Let's go. We're going to war. Now you'll notice the way God displayed that Satan was not his equal, God himself didn't war against Satan. He sent his angelic beings to war against him. He thinks you're so all bad and high and mighty. I've got angels lower than you I've created. I'm going to send them against, at war against you, and they defeat Satan and his angelic beings, and they are hurled. Notice where they are hurled. They are hurled down to the earth. And so when God created his angelic beings, he created them like us. We have the freedom of choice. God creates out of love, and love says, I will give you the freedom to choose. You can choose to either, you know... Um, Walk after me and love me, not out of necessity, but just out of sheer love. And so Lucifer made his choice and became the devil. And God created Adam and Eve with the same ability to choose. And he was saying, and the reason why he set this tree up of uh, the knowledge of good and evil and forbade them to eat of that tree is because, listen, I'm not going to force you to follow me. I'm not going to force you to love me. It's going to be your own choice. It's going to be of your own volition. But if you choose not to, there are consequences attached to that. So, but rebel if you like. 
but I really don't want you to. Because if you rebel, you're going to walk in Satan's path. Now, I want you to know a parallel here. Satan's homestead was called Eden, Ezekiel 28, 13. Adam and Eve's homestead was called Eden. Lucifer was to oversee all of God's angelic creation. Adam and Eve were to oversee all of God's human creation. Lucifer had direct access access to God in heaven. Adam had direct access to God in the garden as they walked together. So what God was doing was recreating the conditions of the original spiritual battle in heaven, and he placed his perfect creatures, Adam and Eve, in a perfect environment with everything that they could ever want. And so God has set up the battle scene all over again on planet Earth when you come to the book of Genesis. Now, Satan's ultimate sentence, though he was hurled to earth, Jesus stated that in Matthew 25, 41. He says, the reason he created the eternal fire, Gehenna, hell, was for Satan and his his demonic angels. And so that will be executed, but that will not be executed. Here's We're going to get into why God didn't snuff Satan out. That will not be executed until the end of Jesus' millennial kingdom, that thousand-year rule and reign here on planet Earth, that he, he then takes Satan and his demonic beings and hurls them into this eternal uh, place of torment and punishment. And so God decided that he was going to demonstrate for you and I, and God decided he was going to demonstrate before his angelic beings and before Satan himself what his glory and his majesty and what his authority looked like. And so if God had destroyed Satan, he would never have demonstrated to Satan his power, his wisdom, his glory, and his other divine attributes. So in order to do that, he sets this war up on planet Earth, so to speak. And so Satan does have the the equality with God, um, but he is kind of like the, the mindset, the brains behind the war ab- above all wars. And so um, we have to learn how to, to look at his deception. So I want you to notice his angels, his demonic spirits, uh, d- spirits were thrown down with him. That means demons live where you live. They work where you work. Um, they watch what you watch. They watch you. Do you know that Satan cannot plant something in your thought processes? I mean, he can't read your thought processes, but he can implant things, and he does it based on observation of human, this human species. He knows what your forbidden fruit is. He knows where your weaknesses are. He's not stupid. He, he is very, very clever, and he's very um, uh, intentional about everything that he, was, that he does. So, um, we're all born on the wrong side. And we know this by Ephesians chapter 2, if you'll just turn there for a moment. And here's what Paul says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, verse 1, in which you were used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the air, the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And so this is the battle behind the battle. This is the the problem behind the problem. This is the side of the war that we were born into. 
This is why you don't teach people how to sin. You don't have sin 101 classes you have to give to children. It just comes naturally with them. If you don't believe me, be a preschool teacher. Be a kindergarten teacher. Carol can testify, right? All right, so let's go to the second one. There is a war on earth, and go to Genesis chapter 2 for a moment, and this war on earth, Adam and Eve lost. God won his war, but Adam and Eve, unfortunately, they lost theirs. And so in Genesis chapter 2, remember God thinks in binary thinking, God, Satan, holiness, sin, obedience, rebellion, truth, lies, and he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. And so it's, it's boy-girl. If that offends you, it offends God if you think otherwise. This is, there's a lot of confusion right now because God has his culture. Remember, it's the kingdom of Satan against the kingdom of God. God has his culture when it comes to sexual things. He says he's designed it originally between one man, one woman. He established the family unit to be the basis through which humanity would live and relate with one another. It was very precious to him. So what do you think Satan's going to come after? Remember, everything Satan that God creates, Satan counterfeits. And so he's going to take what meant, was meant to be something beautiful between a man and woman, and he's going to exploit it, right? He's going to say, well... The family unit isn't really important. Marriage isn't important. It's just a piece of paper anyways. And so if you sleep with your boyfriend, girlfriend, live together, and someday you might get married, that's, that's all fine and well. And so he counteracts in all kinds of sexual deviation. And now we are living in a time when people can't even figure out what gender they are. Now we're saying, well, you know, children need to figure that out on their own. And by age four, they all have that all figured out. If they don't, we'll help figure it out for you. Do you see where all this is going? And then you, you have many, many homes that are fatherless homes, and so there's the dismantling of the nuclear family, and when you dismantle the nuclear family, and there's all this sexual tension, and when you think about all the hurt and the pain and the agony worldwide just because of sexual issues out of control, you begin to understand why we are in the mess that we are in. It's the war behind the war. It's the clashing of two kingdom cultures. And I can assure you that if you follow the culture of the kingdom of God and the word of God, there's going to be people who are going to push back on you, and they're going to call you names, and they're going to put labels on you, and they're going to say all kinds of things about you. I, I've heard it. I've had it you know, Facebooked about me and all these other things. It doesn't really matter because I just know that I, I'm going to trust in God's word. I'm not going to trust in Satan's lies. I'm going to trust in God's culture and not in Satan's culture because God's the one who designed the world to operate so that it operates smoothly. And so here's, here's this, this counterfeit. And so here's what it says about the serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. Circle that word crafty. That means to be conniving, to be devious. Um, if you don't have a plan, I can assure you Satan has a plan for you. If you don't have a plan for your marriage, I'll guarantee you Satan's got one for you. And his goal is what? To destroy your marriage. And he'll do whatever it takes. He'll take as much time as he needs. 
That's his plan for you. That's not God's plan, but that's his plan for you. And so Satan has a plan to destroy you emotionally. He has a plan to destroy you physically. He has a plan to destroy you spiritually. He has a plan to destroy you financially. He has a plan to destroy you relationally. He has a crafty, very intentional plan for your life. And if you don't have a counter plan, it's just a matter of time before you fall for his plan. He cannot, again, read your thoughts, but he does observe your behavior. And he's a master strategist when it comes to defeating you. And so you'll notice the first conversation between the devil and a human being is about God's spoken word. Notice what he says. He's in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God, God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. His original intention was that garden, they would have children, and the Garden of Eden would spread worldwide right here in Satan's backyard. And But Satan realizes he's got to put a stop to that. So he says... Um, now, the serpent was more crafty than any wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from the tree of the garden? So he's questioning God's word. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Well, you notice she added something to God's word. He didn't say anything about touching it. You will not surely die. So now he's denying God's word. Like the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so now all of a sudden he reverses what God says. God says on the day that you eat of it, you're, you will surely, what? You will surely die. Now, um, did God really say, in order to get rid of God's rule and his kingdom, Satan had to get rid of the authority of God's word in Adam and Eve's life. Don't miss this because it's exactly what he does with you. I see people walk away from the Lord all the time. And oftentimes it comes and begins as a nucleus in the attack of God's authority of his word. Somebody says, well, I don't believe that the, uh, the flood actually took place. You can't, it's not scientifically proven. Well, I give you that. It's not. You can't scientifically prove it. However, <laughs> Jesus referenced it in, in regards to himself, and Peter referenced it in his writings. So if Jesus, who was dead and came back to life, and Peter, who witnessed Jesus' death and coming back to life, acknowledges the fall, I'm pretty sure that I could stand on the fall whether you can prove it scientifically or not. But sometimes that's the nucleus. It's just the thing that Satan inserts and gets you thinking, well, if I can't trust that part of the Bible, maybe I can't trust this part, and maybe I can't trust that part, and maybe I can't trust this. And you begin dissecting the Word of God. I want you to notice this linguistic um, kind of dialogue that Satan had, because you probably you may not pick up on this. In chapter 2, every time God is referred to, it is the Lord God. Not just God, the Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah. When Satan says, he doesn't, he did God say, he doesn't say, did the Lord God say, he says, did God say. Notice what he left out, the word Lord. It's the name that means ruler or absolute authority. It indicates the one who is in charge. Yet when Satan talks to Eve, he, re, he removes this very cleverly, and Satan removes the fundamental principle of what that God is the rightful king over his kingdom, and he is challenging now the authority of his word. And he begins to flesh that out. The issue in the garden wasn't whose church is the best. 
Adam's or Eve's or Satan's or God's. The issue in the garden was whose word will be final? Whose word can you trust? Would God be Lord God or would you just say that he is God while making your own decisions and choosing for yourself whether or not it's truly right or wrong? And so the same battle is being fought today. God is fighting for his word to be operating through us. Satan is fighting for his word to be operating through us. And what we try to do is we try to, we try to operate in both realms of, of the, both kingdoms. For example, who you obey, not where you go to church, um, not how often you go to church, who you obey reveals whose kingdom you have aligned yourself under. For example, if God's words challenges you in some area of your life, who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to align yourself to? If you want God to align himself to you, you're hearing from the wrong kingdom. God never adjusts himself to us We're called to adjust ourselves to him. But yet the language and the lingo that we hear all the time in our culture, the culture of our enemy, and even now creeping into the culture of the church is, you know, if if it's true for you, just do it. You know, if it's true for you, uh, and the lies that I I gave you last week that Satan very subtly uses, um, you know, God just wants you to be happy, and so therefore, you know, God wants me to be happy, and I know what God's word says about this, but I'm not going to do it because after all, God just wants me to be happy, and which justifies what you're about to do, and you're asking God to adjust himself to you rather than you to him. And so if that is your mindset, if that's what you're seeking to do, you are not hearing from God. You are hearing from the alternative kingdom, Satan. And so this is the way temptation comes at us in very subtle lies that, listen, the way you know it's a lie of the enemy is because the enemy is asking you to tell God to adjust himself to you rather than you adjusting yourself to your heavenly father. It's very subtle. It's the difference between being an owner and a manager. Now, if you've ever rented an apartment, one of the things you know about renting an apartment, you're not the owner. And the advantage of that, there's disadvantages, but the advantage is when something breaks, you don't have to fix it. But when you own a house, you know what I discovered? If the water heater breaks, you get to buy one. If the furnace goes down, you got to pay for it. If the roof needs replaced, you're the one paying the bill. Because you're the owner. It breaks, you have to fix it. Here's the subtle move of Satan. He's trying to get Adam and Eve to move from being managers of God's kingdom to being owners of God's kingdom or owners of their own lives and their own kingdom. And when they made that shift, now when things break, you gotta you gotta fix it. But if I'm living in God's underneath God's umbrella and protection in his kingdom, now when something breaks in my life. He's the one's going to fix it. You see the difference? This is a subtle shift that, that, that Adam and Eve are making here, and it is going to cost them dearly, and we'll dive into that deeper later, but it is also going to cost us when we uh, also make that shift. So Jesus then came as the dragon slayer, and he won your war. And so in Genesis 3.15, God says, hey, there's going to be one who's coming, and he's, you know, the serpent's going to going to, you know, uh, war against him, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to put the serpent down. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 7 through 10, 
that these things were un, that were unknown were unknown until God made them known. And he said, the rulers of this age, the demonic fallen angelic beings, had they understood fully, if they'd understood fully the ramifications of having Jesus crucified, they would have never done it. They did not realize the ramifications of what was going to happen having Jesus crucified. So when Jesus died on the cross, listen, the fallen angelic beings were having a party. They were having a celebration because all of Jesus' life was built around warfare. I mean, it started all the way back at his birth when the angels had to say to Mary and Joseph, you guys got to get out of here. You got to go to Egypt. Herod is going to take the life of of Jesus. And so Herod takes the lives of all these young boys that are two years under in Bethlehem because he's trying to, you know, stamp out this war and king. Who do you think was behind the mindset of Herod? It was Satan himself. He's, he's interjecting these things. There's a, there is a, 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 you know, a rival ruler that's going to rise up against you. You need to get rid of him. And so Herod did that, tried to anyways. And so Jesus comes back, and he begins his ministry. And what's the first thing that happened? He, he starts by fasting and praying. And, and now all of a sudden, Satan enters onto the scene again. And now he's in this time of hunger and isolation, and he's tired, and whenever you're hungry and isolated and tired, you are more susceptible and open to the demonic coming against you in temptation, and so Jesus is in this condition, and Satan shows up, and he tempts him, and on the third temptation, he says to Jesus, listen, I will, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world, and Jesus didn't negate that, that he had the ability to do that. My point is, Worship is war. That's why every Sunday you go through a war just to get to church. You don't want to get out of bed, feeling a little bad today, kids are all on your case. Oh my gosh, I can't get these kids together. And, you know, if you got preschoolers, I understand that. You know, it's, it's a war to get everybody to church. It's a, usually a war on the way to church. It's like when most fights happen between husbands and wives, and they pull in the parking lot, and everybody's been fighting in the car, and you get out, and somebody greets you, and how are you doing? Oh, wonderful. We're doing great today, liar. And so, you know, it's, it's just a war. When you come in, and you sit down, and, and you begin to stand up and start singing. You, you're trying to get your mind focused on the Lord, and you're trying to keep your mind focused on worship, but yet there's a war going on in your mind, and you're thinking about, uh, did I turn off the stove, and this is what we need to get done today, and, and we got, I, I forgot to get groceries, and I got all this to do, and, and so your mind is constantly battling. Have you ever noticed how much you have to war just to worship? Maybe it's just me. But Jesus overcomes all the temptation that Satan is using to try to destroy him. And so Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, recruits the military and political leaders of his day. He has Jesus arrested, and he is crucified. Now, here's the beautiful part. When Jesus was crucified, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, and verses 13 through 15, that Jesus, when he arose from the dead, that he disarmed the authorities and the power and the rulers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by way of the cross. 
The reason why you can have victory is because Jesus had victory, and so you have to learn how to walk in the victory of Christ. You will never have victory on your own. You can't do this in your own strength. You can't tackle Satan in your own power. You must learn how to leverage the victory of Christ in your life if you are going to triumphant over spiritual war in your own personal life. So here's three reasons quickly why you can win your war. Number one, you are now a a citizen of God's kingdom. If you have truly been born again, and if you've truly given your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for the salvation, the forgiveness of your sin, for salvation, that you have been born again by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God has taken up residence in you. Colossians chapter 1 says that God has transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness. Remember, you were born on the wrong side of the war, and now he's transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now you're on the right side of the war. And that is a beautiful thing because your residence might be in this world, but your citizenship is in heaven. So let me just flesh out something, two things really quickly. Number one is what about generational sins? It is true that when you read the Old Testament, sometimes God would, and you look at the genealogy, sometimes there were family lines that were cursed and family lines that were blessed. Well, the same thing happens in our realm in our day and time. This is a part of spiritual warfare, and that is maybe you grew up in a family, and if you look back over the generations, every generation, it seems like somebody in the family was molested by a family member, a generational sin. Maybe as you look back over your family history, every generation, was, it was like they were always at war with one another. There was fighting and there was chaos and there was religious pride. Or maybe in your generation, it was, it was some kind of addiction. It was um, alcohol, self-destructive behaviors. And maybe in your family line, it was some kind of profound mental illnesses that defies uh, any biological or physical causation. And some of you look back over your family and say, well, it just seems like our family's been cursed. Now the question is, now that you've become a follower in Jesus Christ, does that generational curse have to continue on in your life? And the answer, because Jesus is your dragon slayer and he took Satan and made him his footstool, the answer to that question is absolutely not. You do not have to cave into that. That does not have to be a part of your family line. You can break that. Somebody says, well, how do I break that off? Do I have to confess that? Do I Listen, you walk in the power and the authority and the victory of Jesus, and yes, you want to claim what Jesus has rightfully secured on your behalf. So if there is some kind of generational issue down through your family line and even in your family today, you need, yes, you claim Christ's victory, you break that off, and you, you claim the victory that you have in Christ. You You can do that symbolically. There have been some of us in this church who sat around a campfire. There were things in our family line that we felt like we needed to break off, and we had we had things, we had tangible items that represented those those generational sins, and we threw them in the fire as a symbolic way of saying we are no longer bowing to this in our lives. We are bowing to the victory that Jesus has won on our behalf. What about night terrors? Some of you, when you go to bed, it's a battle. I am told by experts that night terrors are more common among those who are trauma and abuse survivors, soldiers, first responders, and those with PTSD. The Bible says, stay alert, resist the devil, for he will flee from you. It's hard to resist the devil when you're asleep. You ever had a night terror? I've had a few. 
They were spiritual in nature. They were a war against Satan. And they were terrifying. And the thing about night terrors, it's no respecter of age. You say, well, you find night terrors in the Bible? Absolutely. I'll give you a passage. Job chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, Job talked about a night terror that he had. It was a, symbi- it was a warfare that he was having with the evil one. And so let me give you a couple of things about night terrors. First of all, don't just set the physical, but you want to set the spiritual temperature of your home. Our youngest daughter called us and said, you know, their, their two-year-old son, Silas, was having night terrors. I mean, this was going on every single night, night tears and night tears. And, you know, my wife, so she rises up. She, she likes to do that kind of spiritual battle. She says, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to, you, need to, you need to sanctify the home. You need to go and you need to anoint doorways. You need to pray over the house. You need to set music in his room that is praise and worship music. And you need to pray over him before he goes to sleep at night. And so my daughter, you know, sometimes they think we're a little crazy. But she did it, and, and so, yeah, she, she did everything her, her mother said, and she said, I want you to read scripture over him. And again, Psalm 91 can be one of those scriptures that you pray over somebody and pray scripture and pray over him before he goes to sleep, and she did that, and he slept like a baby all night long. Now, that doesn't mean that that was the end of, of the terror, night terrors, but it was the beginning of the end. And so it became a spiritual war but the spiritual war has been won. And so you want to pray offensively, right? You want to pay, pray offensively. You're not praying defensively. You're praying offensively over someone as you are exercising um, the victory of Jesus in their life. Number two, uh, you come to the war with your king's authority. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 4 through 7 talks about this, and we don't have time to read that passage. You can read it later on on your own, but I just want you to know that every time you come to war, you come in your king's authority. Why? Because you're a citizen of his kingdom. So the Bible says this, that you have already, already, this is, um, this is an aorist tense verb, which means it's a past action that's already been completed, never to be repeated. When Bi- the Bible says you have, been, you have been raised up and seated in the heavenly places with your king, that that's a past completed action that has already transpired, and it transpired the moment you gave your life to the Lord Jesus, and you were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. You are seated in the heavenlies with Christ, and therefore now his victory has become your victory. And everything Jesus has victory over can be your victory also. So stop believing this lie of the enemy that you cannot overcome this, that you cannot get victory, that you cannot uh, see a difference, that, that something cannot change. That is a lie of the enemy. The gospel appropriated can and will answer every single issue in your life. Here's the last one. Your defeated enemy must Surrender to your victorious king. Must. Not can think about it. He must. We say, well, how do I know that? Well, because I've, I've been engaged in, de- in, in demonic deliverances. All right, I've done three of my own, and I can assure you, when you bring the name of Jesus onto the platform and you begin to acknowledge his victory, and that the, even the demons cannot stand up against his name. They must, they must surrender to his authority. Not maybe, not think about it. They have to. Now, they may fight you over it, but if you stay at it, they must. And so 
spiritual war is something that is, is you know, I, I understand that it, it is relentless. And we get tired as believers and we say things like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm out. I need a break. I can't do this anymore. I just need to sit down. I just need to rest. I, I, I'm so tired of the war. But I'm telling you, you must stay engaged in the war because if you don't and you give the enemy a foothold, I don't care how spiritual you think you are, you are heading for a fall, a crash. Do you know how many people high-ranking members of, of clergy and presidents of seminaries are falling these days? People that I looked up to, people that I admired, people like Bill Hybels and James McDonald and John Ortberg and now Jerry uh, Falwell Jr. I mean, all of these guys are now out of ministry because they gave a foothold at some point, some juncture in their life and if you look at them, every single one of them, as they reflect back, some of them for sexual issues, some of them for misconduct, of other, you know, unbecoming of their, their office, for some of them it was a power issue, regardless of what it was, I can assure you that at some point in their life, Satan got a foothold and they begin to remove themselves from any kind of oversight by anyone in their life. And they begin to isolate themselves. And when you isolate yourself against your enemy, you're setting yourself up for a mighty crash. I could name a lot more pastors of very prominent churches that are now no longer in ministry. I close with this. In Acts chapter 19, when the Apostle Paul entered into Ephesus, he, uh, one of the things he was doing there, he was casting out demons. And so there was the original um, local Ghostbuster squad called the Seven Sons of Sceva who decided they wanted to get in on action. Well, um, the problem is they weren't born into God's kingdom, right? So they weren't transferred. They had no citizenship in God's kingdom. They had no right or authority to exercise Jesus' name. And so they try this out on some demonic beings, and the demons look at them and say, Hey, uh, Jesus we know. Apostle Paul we recognize. But you guys... You got nothing on us. And it says that they jumped on them and beat them up so badly that when they left the house, they were both what? Unclothed, naked, and wounded. Now, why would the gospel writer, why would someone tell us how they left the house? Naked and wounded. Why is that an important thing? Because when you go up against the demonic and you go up against the demonic without the victory of Jesus as your covering, I can assure you that when somebody beats your clothes off of you, you are wounded more than just physically. You are wounded emotionally and spiritually and psychologically. I mean, nobody wants their pants beat off of them. And so I'm just simply saying, if you are going to take on Satan in spiritual warfare, you had better know you are a member of God's kingdom. Because if you are not, you will get beat up, and you will lose the battle, and ultimately, you'll lose the war. Because if you die in that condition, you will spend eternity separated from the very God who created you until you've made a transfer of kingdom citizenship. And that's why Jesus came to slay the dragon to take all the bite out of the lion and to defang him so that he might roar, 
but he ain't got nothing on you if you're a child of the king. Let's bow our heads together. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. For doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you will raise up an army who are not afraid to engage in warfare. You have called us in your word soldiers, that we are to be engaged in the battle for the realm of humanity in the here and now, that we are not to cower in fear and to isolate ourselves away, just hoping that someday you'll come and gather us out of this world and make life all better. But we are in a war. And I pray for the weary warriors that are in our church and in your kingdom who have been battling and battling and battling and it seems like we're getting nowhere. But Father, we know that you are always on the move, that you're always warring, you're always fighting on our behalf. You're always dispatching angels who are also engaged in the war on our behalf. So may you bind up the wounded Fill us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit and his power, his diligence, his accessibility that we would go into the world and we would be used by you to share the good news of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, there's there's power in that name. There's deliverance in that name. There there is victory in that name. And Father, I I pray that over our church body, over the churches in our city and our state and our nation and around our world, that there be a fresh anointing and fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit we would come to the realization that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world and that we will rise up and experience the freedom that Christ came to deliver to us as he disarmed Satan and he slayed the dragon and now he's made a public spectacle of him so that we might win our own individual wars. God, raise up an army. Raise up an army that we might storm the gates of hell with everything that we have at our disposal. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's just stand together as we just close worshiping together.